tell you about my childhood and ruin the first half of my novel. We will give our people what they want, agreed? If you want to ask the question, ask it. When he brought it up, I was shocked. I feel like we're close here. Most of the time, it looks like you're doing nothing. Why can't they just leave it alone? What do women want? Any excuse to get closer. Welcome to Mad Men, men, where we're talking about Mad Men and we're starting with the first season. We're going to talk about the second episode, Ladies Room. Uh, before we do, my name is John Agroni and he is Will Ashen. Hey, Will. Hey, John. And this other guy is Michael Overholz. Hey, Michael Overholz. Hello. Boys, we did it. We managed to watch the pilot of Mad Men and actually wait at least a few days before watching the second episode. How long did you last, though? I think I, la- I, I, think I was the weakest because I watched it like two days later. And then rewatched it. Tough time lasting, huh, John? It's yeah. it's hard to hear. It's a problem uh, I tend to have. Yeah. So it gets, brings me to, I guess, the question of the episode, John. What do women want? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been asking myself that a lot lately. They want me to watch more Mad Men. I I waited an exact week. I just, wow. uh, but that was through, I guess, a force of will. I wish I could have just binged Mad Men again when I watched the pilot, mm. but because we're doing the podcast, I fit it into a rhythm. It's part of like a daily ritual It's for the best. It's yeah. for the best. Cause if you blast through it, we're going to, we would miss so much. Now, will Michael just said that you forced him. You said force of will. Um, oh, I don't know okay. what you forced him to do. Maybe spray some deodorant on it. I'm not sure. Mm. I Fair wish enough. I had been there to watch it. Sure. But uh, yeah, what about you? I did the same thing. I waited a whole calendar week. You guys just bragging over here. Oh, yeah, I followed the rules. Yeah, I did, too. Well, I wanted it to be fresh on my mind because I was afraid Mm -hmm. I'd forget some stuff if I didn't watch it, uh, you know, earlier today. So I chose to wait a week and I felt that was more fitting because I I, this was a weekly program. That's true. And, you know, people had to wait a whole dang week back in 2007 or whatever to watch this second episode. So I did the same thing. Yeah, this episode aired on July 26, 2007. We were actually talking about this off the air. But this episode, they filmed it a year later. They retooled a bunch of things. They finally cast Bertram Cooper. They kind of figured out some of the roles that were sort of in flux before, which we'll probably talk about. And Matthew Weiner, who wrote the pilot, we were kind of talking about this too. He wrote the the screenplay for this episode at least seven years after he wrote the pilot, which is kind of wild. Did you guys get the sense of that? Like, did you get did you get the feeling that this was like a totally different sort of concoction compared to the first episode? And if so, like in a good way, bad way? Yeah, it definitely it definitely felt like there were at least I, I would say around the the copywriters and, you know, the mid-level gang surrounding Dawn, just a lot more um, depth into those characters. Right. They weren't just the the gang of Pete Campbell and Don Draper. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, Paul Kinsey. Yeah, um, he's a copywriter now. Mm hmm. And you get your first like full lot. taste of them. Yeah, Peggy got a lot of taste of them, but we'll get to that. <laughs> more than she wanted, that's for sure. What about you, Will? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the big thing—it's not a story thing. It's just uh, in terms of how the actors look. John Hamm actually looks more like what I typically associate John Hamm looking like in my brain. Not that he looks notably different in this episode, but I, uh, one thing I noticed in the pilot, but didn't really talk about. Uh, previously was that he looks so much younger in the pilot and it kind of took me aback and I was thinking like oh maybe he just looks a lot younger in the first season I just didn't chalk it up because I was just 
you know, basically getting to know John Hamm for the first time. But then I see him in this second episode. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's John Hamm. That's why I associate John Hamm. He's featured a little bit. I still don't see that. Like, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. He looks the same to me. Maybe there's something a little bit more. He's a little bit more baby face in the pilot. It's it's a very small difference. But if you You see him in this, he's a little bit, Mm. you know, sharper in the facial features. It's very small, though. You know what it was, Will? You know what they gave us a ton of in this episode we didn't get in the pilot? Don Draper chest hair, man. That's oh, yeah. true. Every second they could, they were like, take your shirt off, do some push-ups. Mm. It's the Legend of Zelda in that little cave <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 have some Don in this episode embracing his familial side because the whole thing with the first episode is that we're not supposed to know that he has a wife and kids until the very end. This episode's a little bit more balanced, right? We we got to see like what what is Don like? And he's kind of like a cheesy dad a little bit, you know. He's like doing the push-ups like 98, 99. He's doing like dad jokes and stuff. I felt like I was watching or I was hanging out with Will Ash and he cracks dad jokes and he's not even a dad. But yeah, it's an interesting episode. Uh how would you guys before we kind of like break it down a little bit, how how would you think it compares though? Mike, did you did you like this episode more or less the same? You know, they're hard. It's hard to compare, right? I think a lot of times pilots, um, you know, the purpose of each of these episodes were so different. It felt like the pirate pilot was giving us the tone of the show. Uh, But it finally like we were getting to the meat and potatoes of what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, What is going to be happening this season? Who is Don Draper? Um, I felt a lot more immersed into the world. It could be just because I was, you know, more used to it. But it felt like it was actually going somewhere instead of just being nothing but setups. Yeah, that's pretty fair. All right. What about you, Will? Uh, I mean, I think my opinion on this episode is pretty close to the first one. I think the first one, you can just tell that Matthew Weiner had had that script for how many years. And like it just everything about it. Is so pre- precise and just like you, you can tell that he just really took over every single detail. And this is a really sharp script as well. But just you, you can just tell the note. You can see the attention to detail really is in that first episode a lot and this one you know it you know the script is very good like i said but it just felt like it didn't have quite that same like years devoted to writing it quality yeah yeah it's like the the pilot's a well-oiled machine and it's kind of fitting because the pilot has like a couple of pitches it has like clients and a lot of ad stuff in this episode we don't really have any of that we sort of have like the creative underworkings and it kind of matches that second episode feeling that I guess you're talking about too, Mike, where it's, yeah, we're kind of like starting to get into the actual, what is this show? It's not just pitches. It's not just like speeches about happiness. It's kind of like exploring a little bit more of, you know, what, what do the characters want? What are they not failing to get? What's in their way? A lot of stuff like that. Uh, I, I also appreciate how the, the beginning of this episode, which I guess we can talk about, feels almost like a little bit of like a short story, almost like the way that it sort of begins and you know rises with betty and then sort of ends with her kind of just like spelling out the theme of the show or like the big question that the show hangs every season which is who's inside there like betty's deepest frustration with don which we didn't see in the first episode is that she just she does not know her husband and it's kind of messed up it, it to this day like every time i watch this episode i'm like it's it's so bewildering how much information he keeps from her and she just sort of has to put up with it like she doesn't have a choice. And also this episode is interesting because we're really following three viewpoints of three different women and there's a lot of like work going on here with each of these women and how they're sort of like dealing with, you know, basic misogyny in the 60s and all of that. We're obviously getting lots of setup that we won't give away too much, but I do want to 
I want to put a note in this episode that we would have to maybe like talk more about in a future date, which is that I think this the way that this episode handles Don's romantic life and why he has affairs, why he's unfaithful, and what he tries to get from women. A lot of the answers are in this episode to like I think the whole show takes seven seasons to really get that like firm and like confirmed and everything. But you can see it just in this episode, which is really impressive. And last thing I'll say is that I think that the pilot is stronger because this episode is a little bit more heavy handed. There's there's way more overt stuff going on here. It's it's not quite as like, I don't know, subversive. Um, but I guess that's part of I one thing this episode does better though is it has way fewer like it's the sixties. Did you notice that it's the sixties? By the way, it's the sixties. There's like two big things and they only they involve Betty, so I guess it, you know, that's one thing. But okay, we get, I guess we can break this whole thing down, huh? What were you gonna say, Mike? Oh no. I was just gonna make yeah, but they still also had the the obligatory uh gay man acting straight too hard scenes. Oh you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had one more of those. I think it's better when he does look like really trying to look like he's checking Peggy out at that one. Point. <laughs> I was like, gonna feed that up. You yeah. can tell he's practiced. Well, and, oh, what a great performance! Of like, oh. I did have a question about that, and I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this or not. But I was curious: is that because that's a POV shot? So we're seeing it from Peggy's point of view. Is that actually the look that he's giving, or is that just the perception that Peggy has of him? I think that's the look that he's giving, isn't it? Why just I just felt it like really it work seemed, otherwise. I don't know, because it just didn't seem like his usual demeanor. Like it seemed more like I, I don't know. I, I just took it as like that's how Peggy saw it. Like You've not only had her. one episode to get to know him, Will, and you're already trying to figure him out. What did oh, Will granted, want? I have Will, seen Will's the just... first season. I have seen the first it's been a long time since that, but I have seen the first season. But I, that was something that a thought that crossed my mind. So I just wanted to pull the table. Speaking of drinking a lot, I have it, boys. This week. The Maker's Mark is coming out. Oh, We're going to talk about this episode. Ooh. Now you've Mike, done it. Mike, Mike doesn't know, Will. Mike hasn't really seen me put some whiskey back in quite a bit. Oh, boy. As I was going to say, in quite a bit. I've seen you put some whiskey back, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was but, good. Yeah. It's I'm, drinking, I'm drinking Pendleton tonight again. I'm on glass, too. I'm just doing a regular old beer because last time I got a little too into the whiskey myself so i wanted got a little to too razzle dazzle i got a little bit yeah i was just like i want to i want to be a little bit more civil this time so i want to be like your whiskey i like I where be, you were at last week i want to be don coming home from work i want my <laughs> yeah, wife started. to be like starting on the train <laughs> nope at work <laughs> perfect um no i'm excited because i haven't had anything to drink in over a month uh so not even water, John. You have to drink, buddy. We told you this. You gotta be hydrated. Whiskey's just as good as water, isn't it? All right, ladies' room. Okay, so this episode begins with uh, a scene that I already mentioned earlier. The scene where we see Roger and his re- uh, John Slattery's real life wife. Let me make sure I get her name right. I know her first name is Talia. I didn't I know that her last That's name. A good tidbit. It's Mrs. Slattery. Mrs. Slattery. <laughs> <laughs> nope um, no it's talia something uh talia balsam balsam something like that but yeah no they're married in real life and they're on a little bit of a double date at a restaurant uh, i think it was called like the the toot Suro or something like that uh there's a there's a nice little line of dialogue there's a lot of like quips that don is kind of we we notice a lot in this episode that don tries to deflect questions about himself with 
like quips and sort of like, oh, you know, chicken before the egg or, you know, oh, it's because you didn't see my good side. He's just like, that's his like defense mechanism. Right? I don't want to give away the first half of my novel. That was yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, was a pretty good, good one. I feel like I've said that before, which that's how pretentious I've been before. But John, you've written a novel. You can't use it anymore. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> not not like an American novel. Not like a novel about my life, right? Is that not about your life? Oh man, I read that so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, it's a sci-fi fantasy novel. So, um, but anyway, this this scene is interesting because you can kind of tell the early part, the early goings of what clearly seems to be Betty's depression. She's sort of struggling to get Don to talk about himself. She's feeling like she she's trying to talk. She's trying to kind of just have like a conversation with these people, but you can sort of tell that she doesn't fit in. What was your read? Because I think this is our first introduction to Betty. So we can start with you, Mike. What, what was your take on this? This whole get down, this dinner, super uncomfortable. Yeah, this uh, dinner with Andron. I don't know. I was trying to make a dinner with Andre joke. It didn't exactly work. Um, I... You know, I, I I wasn't getting a lot of Betty, right? You're at the table, and I think, like the times, the show kind of draws you in to, um, to what Don is saying. But once Betty got to the bathroom, I love the quick line of, uh, you ever have that when your hands go numb? And of <laughs> no. course, she's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's not even, like, concerned. She's just sort of like, huh. Uh, also, that whole, I mean, it's called the ladies' room. There's a lot in this episode about mirrors in general. Um, and sort of like pe- reflections of each people. Uh, I, I kind of want to put a pin in that because it it's relevant in this scene, but then it's going to come up later. But what about you, Will? Did you what do you think of Betty in this scene? What, what do you think of this scene? Did you love it? Well, I wanted to make a correction. Betty is in the pilot. Um, so we yeah, yeah. Meet her. We, we barely. This is where we really get an introduction to her character, though, right? Okay, I didn't know what you meant exactly. If you, if that's what you were referring to, the proper, or if it's the first time we see January Jones, because we do get to see. A couple actors for the first time in this episode so i just want to make sure yeah like bertram cooper yeah and then yeah a few people but yeah yeah this is is like where we she actually has some lines of dialogue she has a story a Mm -hmm. subplot yeah well she has lines of pilot too but um yeah i get what you mean uh yeah it's a really good scene i full blast you see this mike sure um every week but i really uh going back to the mirror thing real quick i just want to say i really admire the cinematography for all the mirror shots those are very hard to get right and I, I know that uh phil abraham was also the dp again for uh this episode he shot the previous one this was just like before i think he was getting into direction himself or like just around that time like he was between being a dp and a director i think he actually directs a couple episodes of mad men later down the road um but you know just that solid good work uh, i was trying to remember if he shot a particular episode in sopranos that was very mere heavy as well because i was trying to think about that but we're not talking about Sopranos. We're talking about Mad Men, baby. Yeah, we're talking about Mad Men as men. Yeah, I think um, the visuals in this episode, I think, tend to stick out more for me than the dialogue. Some of the dialogue is just really like, okay. Like, uh, there's one part where Roger's wife literally says, like, don't smile. It'll make it harder. <laughs> it's like, okay. I wonder what you're trying to say there. Uh, but it's still nice. Um, so Betty, she's a little sick from her food. She had a, I think it was like lobster with like her vodka gimlets. Also uh, interesting, the the idea of like the old fashioned and the gimlet, like new versus old. There's a lot of that stuff going on this episode too. And it's something that I think the show does better later, that sort of contrast, uh, I think. Because in this episode, it's like you literally have Ken Cosgrove being like, 
the modern man you know he uh yeah he he listens to the radio not the he gets his news from the radio not the paper and then literally in the same episode uh i think it's paul i think it's is it paul somebody who's basically saying that like radio is like an aging whore or something like that. dying whore dying whore was that what it was i'm almost positive yeah, no, Betty, Betty's saying to Don in the car ride home, she's like, she she liked seeing Don the way other people see him. And it's like this desperation. It's like this this feeling she has that like she does not know this man. And she's like flailing because they've didn't they've been together for at least eight, nine years now because Sally is around that age. And yeah, I, I think that this is like really good early stuff for Betty in general. But yeah, so Don uh, also has this line of dialogue where he says, because uh, Betty's trying to get him to talk about his childhood, right? And she's literally like, well, you know, like, what, you know, what were you like? Okay, can we thank your, you know, parents for, for all of this, whatever. And he basically says that talking about your childhood is the same thing as talking about politics, religion, and sex. And I, that that always sticks out to me a lot because like it's kind of like the hands go numb thing. He just sort of like accepts like, oh, you know, when that's that's something that people believe, right? And I I think in this episode for the first time, I was like, it's kind of like um maybe that's why they chose people are funny as the show that gets like mentioned a couple times here. Cause that to me just came off as like the show trying to have like a sense of humor, but not really being I think I think Mad Men gets much funnier and sharper than this. I guess that's my point. No, I, I think there are a couple of funny moments in this pilot or it's not, not pilot second episode. Mm. Um, one in particular, I really enjoy without giving too much away is when. Um, oh, uh, who's the actor? Who's the character we're talking about earlier? Um, the, we're talking about a bunch of characters. Uh, I know. Sal. Uh, the closet and gay man. I Sal. I didn't, Sal. I, got I, didn't want to, I didn't want to designate solely to that, but I felt bad because it's the main thing I know about him at this point. Uh, Sal comes in and uh, Don had already uh, called in sick. He's talking to uh, Peggy and he's just like, where's Don? He's like, oh, he's calling in sick. He's just like, I was never here. He just instantly talks. <laughs> yeah. Good bit. Uh, I'm leaving. Don't tell anyone I was here. Yeah. Very. And there, there is that part where like Paul is just like, haven't you ever worked in an office before? It's like, if he's not here, that means you can go to lunch. Um, very true. Very true. But all right. Um, also, think- uh, all the okay. deodorant pitch stuff as well. Like they're selling it like a spaceship. And acting like deodorant is this like sci-fi concept was pretty good comedy stuff, I think. Well, that's the more subtle stuff, I think, is kind of nice because it's it's good writing for Paul, right? Because we get to know him more as like he's a Twilight Zone guide and kind of comes full circle that he thinks that that would be a good ad. And that this is good setup because that is like Paul's like deep desire is to be like a creative person, but he can't get that out of him through this job. Uh, and even he has that line. He's like, I still have my novel. <laughs> Oh uh, man. Uh there's a little bit of um stuff going on with Joan and and Paul here where like in the first episode, I don't think we really mentioned it, but like they kind of hint that she and Paul had like a thing, right? And I guess in this episode, you see a little bit more like as soon as like Paul says anything to Peggy, Joan kind of like swoops in. And it's weird because there's other stuff that's gonna happen this season that really makes me wonder why. Like, was there just sort of like a failed like love triangle thing that they wanted to do that they just got rid of, or is that just me? I don't know. I didn't read it specifically as Paul. Um if I'm just looking at these first two episodes, and we'll I guess your read on this is gonna be more accurate as you've seen less of Joan, but it just makes it, I feel like the whole thing about Joan is that she has had a thing with everyone. 
the doctor she recommended to Peggy. She knows all the guys in the office. It's just that, that's just kind of to me was that's who Joan is. She's gonna swoop in. She's gonna flirt with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but she's certainly someone who is you know of all the characters the most aware of her sexuality, most aware of her innate charisma. And I think she kind of uses that in different ways. Like, I mean, certainly, like, even if it's just a flirtatious way, like, she can use that to her advantage. I don't know if she's necessarily had a thing or a fling with everybody and anyone in the office, but certainly I think she's, like, you know, kind of, like, uh, established herself through her sexuality. Not that it's only her sexuality, but certainly that's a great asset for her in this workplace. Yeah, I'm going to hold my tongue because there are certain things about Joan that I think we they, they grow her with the show in terms of like what she really wants. I just don't see as much in these early episodes, which is kind of throwing me off because I, I guess what I'm saying is like, this is not the Joan that I think the show really lands with. Um, even in this first season, I think we get more of is, like what she really, what her motivations are later. You think that's a limit whiner's part? I don't even think it's a limitation. I think it's just sort of like a false start. It's just sort of like, here's where the character started. And I think they found something better along the way, which is a, which is great. Like that's way better than the alternative where, you know, they just kind of stuck with what might not have been, what might not have been as good or might not have. Cause I think in these early episodes, she just comes off as slightly one dimensional to me and where I think we get to know her, they, it gets much deeper and there's like way more, uh, there's a better explanation for why she is the way she is, but we'll have to talk about yeah. that later, I guess. I would say, isn't that just the way it works though? Right. It, it feels like he has such a vision for specifically Dawn and Peggy. And, yeah. And and it kind of feels like halfway through the show, they just start writing their own plots. Like uh, their characters just take them naturally where they need to go. And that's kind of when you start to get the Joan that the show lands with, right? It's kind of like, he's like, I figured these two out. Let's move about the office and figure out. Same thing with John Slattery, right? Uh, I don't think his his character is super fledged out right now. And you're going to get a lot more of him as the show goes on. It's just right. For now, he's just like, a trickster. He's he's just the lovable scamp, you know, the guy with yeah. the best dialogue. Also, uh, same with the Colonel Sanders man. I don't know his name yet, but he looks a lot like Colonel Cooper. Sanders. Cooper. Okay. Ah, oh, he's one of the best characters. You're I'm not saying love... he's a. I'm not saying he's a bad character. I just I'm saying mm-hmm. watching or rather rewatching this pilot, all I really know or remember about him is that he looks a lot like Colonel Sanders. So, so far, you made you've made fun of Sal. You made fun of Cooper. Who's next on Will's hit list? What did I make fun of Sal for? Uh, not, I don't know. It's not like I just didn't remember his that. name. That's not me making fun of him. It's like, is that Peggy's perspective that he's bad at checking? No, that was a genuine question. Saying. I don't know what this <laughs> this accusation. I, I think Sal is probably my favorite character so far, if I'm going to okay. be honest. So, oh, you're going to say Mike? Oh, no. I was just going to break your balls. You can oh, go good, on. good. I'm glad I would encourage it. Mike, uh, go ahead. Bust his balls a little bit. I think, I think what he was going to go after me on that one. So then Peggy goes in the bathroom with Joan and that scene that I was kind of alluding to before where they they're playing with like the reflections where you see the reflection of a one woman, but then you see Peggy like the real person. I love that that shot because it's like you, you just get the sense that like Peggy who's kind of caring and who's kind of like, hey, you know, you're all right. And this woman and we just see her, her reflection and she's just like crying. And mm-hmm. I think like one of the themes of this episode is that Peggy just views herself as like in a totally just different headspace a different dimension than a lot of these other characters in the office and one thing that i i really appreciate about this episode too that i think the pilot kind of starts but doesn't really like set is that really like peggy has so much in common with don 
it's it's something that like is just going to keep getting better and better as the season goes. But I remember when I was first watching this show and I, I was having discussions with people about it and they're like, I wish we got more of like what Don's life was in the fifties at Sterling Cooper. How did he become the creative director? And like, we don't need oh. flashbacks for that sort of thing. Cause we have Peggy's story in terms of like, what is it like her first day at Sterling Cooper? And she's trying to like be her own person. Careful, John, you're, you're going to give some AMZ executive an idea for a prequel series and that's going to get greenlit <laughs> for 2024. Oh, you so know, they've already, tongue. They've danced or they've probably wanted to do a Don Draper pre- prequel with uh, who Who would we cast? You know, Bran Stark from Game of Thrones. I don't know. Um, are we casting that young for a young Don? How young is this? Well, he's now young? in his 20s, Will. You're right. It's okay. probably going to be one of the Stranger Things kids. Yeah. No, what about uh, what about what, is it Jacob Lordy or just Jacob Lordy? Jacob Lordy. Who's that? Oh, you're yeah. talking about Bran Stark? You know? No, he's in Euphoria. He's Nate Jacobs in Euphoria. He's also oh, the I haven't seen Kissing Euphoria. Booth. Yeah, I haven't seen I you. Seen I was going to I was gonna propose Logan Lerman, my good friend from Perks Being a Wellflower. That could he, work. He's he's yeah. right. Well, he's getting a little older, isn't he? Isn't he about to but be But he like looks young. Yeah. He has that boyish face. You look face. young, Will. Well, thank you. Welcome. You're right. Barry Keegan it is. He could do it. That would be like the chaos version of that. <laughs> For sure. But anyway... So Peggy's still kind of getting the ropes of Sterling Cooper. And another thing that I wanted to note here, I'm not sure if I I don't know when it's going to break, but I do appreciate that these early episodes, by the way, never start at Sterling Cooper or at least so far they start outside of the office, which is kind of fitting, you know, because I think the show could have easily fallen into the trap where it's a show about advertising executives, which is not what the show is like at all. It's sort of like incidental that it's about advertising, I guess. Um, Mike, why are you sending us pictures? Who's this guy? That is Jacob Lordy. That's they Jake. This is the this, is, guy? this guy? is no, that's this the is... guy from uh Euphoria. Is he also in the kissing booth? Oh yes, he's in both. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm so just... This is our Don Draper circa twenty five. Yeah. If, if for the listeners who don't know, I'm a professional oh. casting agent. So if oh, you wow. actually want to be in the movies, you can just you can you can send me your info. I well now See, I, I know the reason, reason you haven't helped me out is I don't have talent. I thought you were referring Ooh. to the the guy from Super 8 that's in the um, Kissing Booth movies. I thought you were talking about two different people, but I don't know that actor's name. That's Noah Centineo, Will Ashen. No, that's no, that's from To All the Boys I Loved Before. I know, I know some of these things. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. Joey King plays Don Draper. No, 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 not Joey <laughs> King. <There we> go. <laughs> but, you know, if they want to do a gender flip Don Draper, I, you know, I'm, I'm there for it. Well, if we were just going to do that, we'd just do a Peggy Olsen show proper. But I, I again, well, I that's feel like what, that is what Mad Men is. Isn't that what AMC wanted? Like after the show ended, they were trying to get a spinoff about Peggy and Matthew Weiner was just like, yeah, nah. you don't need it. Her right. story ends. Better call, ends better call Peggy. Yeah, better call Peggy. <laughs> um, so this next scene is interesting. Uh, so the guys are hanging out uh, in Don's office jackets are off it's a little bit more casual i think cooper calls it like a you know there's like a navy attitude that the guys have here and there's a new character i don't remember seeing him in the pilot i don't know if they even name him in this but he's yet another kind of like account executive dark-haired guy i think he's supposed to be a writer with paul though Uh, i could be mistaken but yeah so they have the whole thing where they're gonna they're gonna try to do an ad for right guard like deodorant and they're trying to like figure out, oh, how does it smell? And there's kind of an uncomfortable scene here where they decide to like make Ken the butt of the joke. 
and it pretend gets a little like it's bit, prom night yeah it's not great you could be the girl yeah yeah um <laughs> literally they like take his shirt off and like manhandle him so i also thought it was interesting too it seemed like don was a lot more um involved not involved approving that the hijinks happening in his office like with pete's bachelor mm-hmm. party right he was super above it he's looking to get into upper management He's the director of creative. You guys are just mid-level guys. But this was like the boys were in Don's office hanging out. He wasn't kicking them out until he had to go have a more important meeting. Well, so do you think okay. do you think that that's because he is sort of like he doesn't have the pressure of the lucky strike pitch weighing on him, or do you think it's something else? That that was my read of the pilot was that he was stressed out, and that's why. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's a really great read. I think even yeah, this shows. Uh, as Don gets more stressed at work, he gets a little bit more into himself. Um, more like into Midge, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's accurate. It's accurate. I don't know. Will, you were, it looked like you were about to say something super uh, profound. Yeah, no, my final thought I was going to say was call 21 Pilots because Don Draper is stressed out. Oh, that's why you decided not to talk. Yes, um, I, I, then- you guys are actually having... A thoughtful conversation about the show. So I was like, I'll hold my tongue. But John's like, no, 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 go ahead. (laughs) Sorry for calling your bluff. Then Cooper barges in at the worst possible moment. Uh, He says Navy attitude. That's what he says. Navy attitude around this place. And that's Roger's fault. Uh, I think I think they stress already that Roger was in World War Two. And we get this is Cooper of Sterling Cooper. And, you know, he's obviously like a bit older. He's a bit more of like the they call him the guy upstairs at one point. Paul does. And he takes Don aside, and they're gonna they're they're still on that uh, Richard Nixon sort of uh, subplot that might be developing later this season. I think it's much better than the last episode in terms of like the historical sort of like attitude around it. I have to say though, so they're having this conversation right outside of Don's office, which is weird, isn't it? Like you'd think that the guys would have left the room, and then Don and Roger but and Cooper would be in his office. It is weird, smells. but. This has a really, we were talking about the comedy of the show earlier. This has a really mm-hmm. funny kind of subtle sight gag where they're talking. You just see this burst of flyer. Like they don't address it too much, but it's implied that someone got one of their lighters on the deodorant and just lit up and found yeah. out that you can light deodorant on fire. And yeah, they don't yeah, really yeah. call too much attention to it, but I think it's a really, that's probably the funniest gag in the whole episode. Yeah, I liked it. What did you think, Betty psychiatrist? I think it, uh, I think th- them leaving the office, I think, speaks a lot to like Bertram or the I don't think it was weird. It read to me it was like this guy is about business, like the quickest thing for them to do right now is to step out of the office. He's gonna tell Don because Don turned down the, the offer before, right? He didn't want do you to think it's get a power involved. move? Do you think it's more of like we're not gonna have this conversation in your office, like you're so important. We're gonna do it out here in front of everybody. I, I don't know if it's as much of a power move as much of uh, speaking to Bertrand's like ability to just be about business. Like, I don't care about anything else going on. Do what you need to do. Let's just have this quick conversation. Then I'm going to leave. I mean, the man okay. doesn't even wear shoes in the office. He does what he wants to do. That's I love, weird. I love that they did that quirk so early on. too. It, it's weird for 2022, let alone with, you know, 50s, 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we are in New York, you know, someone hasn't seen a certain Sundance movie that I can't talk about too in depth but john has seen it i think my my left foot yeah sure (laughs) i have to admit this scene always confuses me i i don't 
this next like conversation they're having while the stuff is going on in Don's office where they're sort of being like, yeah, like we, we should try to get, you know, Dick Nixon to, you know, basically get rid of Ted Rogers and work with them. But Don is just kind of like, why are we doing this? He's kind of whining. And I, I don't really get it. Like he even sort of says like, Oh, I don't vote. So it's like, it doesn't have anything to do with politics, I guess. I didn't realize what, you were so you... close to Richard Nixon, calling him Dick Nixon and all. <laughs> well, that's what they call him. Uh, I thought they call him Richard kinda... Nixon. Did they call him Dick Nixon? No, they said Dick Nixon. Okay, my yeah, bad. Yeah. They did in the first episode. They called him Richard, but I'm just I'm going to curious. Like, why do you think Don is so resistant? To, I don't remember the rest of this season him being so like fiery about or just being so like he's this guy. You know, he wants us. I, I, I don't know. We, I, Don's scared of failure. He doesn't want to be put into position to fail. Um, and I, that's why he gets so stressed about the Lucky Strike account. That's why he gets so stressed about figuring out what women want. He feels like he's failing his wife, right? He just, he doesn't, this is a hard situation. He'd rather avoid it than be thrown into it. But also I feel like it's implied that like Don doesn't even really want to fully understand life and the problems they're in. Like he sees advertising is a sort of mathematical equation that can be solved and therefore there's some sense to it i kind of get the sense that like if he can figure out a pitch he can kind of figure out what life is about i don't know is that me reading too much into him though i think it's less about figuring life out and i think it's more figuring out people because i think this whole episode is a bit of a i I think that he has a worldview he has a sort of like this is what i'm supposed to be like striving for specifically when it comes to like later when he thinks that like making betty happy is like getting her a new watch telling her that you know look at our kids look at our house like i don't know i think i think that he's obviously torn and conflicted about this sort of thing i guess i just struggle to connect that to his fear of a political campaign because i think like in theory like that conceptually makes sense mike that he'd be afraid of failure but i just wonder does the does the episode really stress that a lot? Like, does it really kind of get to the heart of like why that would be a new challenge for him? Um, I mean, if uh, not, that's okay because it doesn't have to be explicit. But I, don't, I, I mean, I took the politics. Mean, I mean, like I said, I'm fairly green to the show, but I took the politics thing as more that he wants to be as undivisive as possible. But like by nature, of being an advertisement person, he doesn't want to cause strife even among his coworkers. So by being apolitical, he's choosing not to really take a stance and kind of appeal to as broad an audience as possible. I like that read. I, d- I just wish that the, I was seeing the same thing. Cause that would make a lot of sense. And I think that would, that would be really cool. if like, that's what they were going for. But I guess I just didn't get that from that scene, but Hey, maybe I'm forgetting stuff that happens later in the first season. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hope for the best. All right. So then Cooper walks away in his socks and I, I do say we don't get enough of Roger in this episode, but what we get is pretty good. Uh, Paul and uh, I think um, the rest of the guys go out to lunch, but Peggy brings out her sad lunch or whatever. It's like oh, a banana. I, I was waiting to talk about this brown banana, which I think. <laughs> yeah. What's that about? Oh, I mean, I think even for Peggy, that's a bit extreme. Like, I feel like <laughs> the sad sandwich makes sense to me. I, I forget what the, sure, the sure. other I, item was, but like. Nobody would have that decrepit of a banana, right? Like, even that, Peggy, I feel like. I mean, she does live in Brooklyn. That was the prop department scene that there was a banana needed for a lunch. They bought all the supplies, and then they shot the scene three weeks later. And they're like, yeah, well. They were like, oh, it's delayed. <laughs> there's a the banana. 
It is, it is interesting. Like, I don't know if this was intentional, but they even like have at the very beginning of the episode where Roger is just sort of like, oh, I, you know, my nanny used to make fried chicken and I'd, wa- I'd wrap it in wax paper and bring it with me. And his wife We're is just like, about, okay, you know, he had Belvedere for a nanny. Yeah. Yes. Cooper and fried chicken. Keep going. Keep going. I like the Sterling. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, never mind. You got to stop with the Colonel Sanders, Joe. Nah, I'll say, I'll say. I um, want some nice ads for you guys. Uh, I, I wanna... <laughs> before before we go down that uh you know rabbit hole among rabbit holes uh Bertram cooper is played by robert morse who was in the um the film this is 60s film he's like a kid in the film uh how to succeed in business without really trying and so a nice little sort of like nod there and all of that Hey, mad men, men and women and everybody else. So sorry to interrupt the show, but unfortunately, Robert Morris, the actor we are about to talk about, actually passed away just days after we recorded this episode in April. So that is why you're about to hear some accidentally incorrect information, and we do apologize for that. So hopefully you'll still enjoy our convo. Again, we're sorry. Okay, back to the show. But uh, he is he is still alive. Uh, Bertram Cooper, because I looked it up. I wasn't sure. He's getting, he's getting up in years. He's 90 years old. He was Santa Claus in Teen Titans. You were Santa Claus in that dream I had once. I literally was Santa Claus for a pet, like, pet photo op at a at an animal hospital once. So I know, Mike. I was there. I've been, I've done that before. I pretend to be Santa Claus for, like, nieces and nephews. Have you ever done that, John? No. Well, you're the outliner. It's two <laughs> beats... You heard right, it here first, folks. John hates his nieces and nephews. Wow. No, I'm I'm Puerto Rican. Like they, they take one look at me and they're like, "You're not a white guy from North Pole. You're just a white guy from Puerto Rico." Uh, John, you're not committed enough. You got to really sell it. You got to be. It's never going to happen. No, the, the, you're, the you're an ad man. You got to sell it, baby. I it would be part of being an ad man. Is you got to know when to sell, when not to sell. Maybe that's what Dom's mm-hmm. getting out with Dick Nixon. But no, if I when I dress up as characters, my nieces and nephew, it's I always stay in my lane. I, I dress up as like Zorro or something. You guys wouldn't understand. I I don't, uh, have, I don't have the beard that you got. I mean, well, you shaved it, but you two got your beards going on. I don't. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention. I guess that I had a beard in the previous episode. Not the listeners would know. And now I don't have a beard, so that's we one do have a video difference. recording. So and, and now he looks like Doctor Disrespect, I don't official on the podcast. You do know who he is. I sent you a picture off the air. I I know what he looks like. I still don't know who he is. But quit lying. All right, I, I'm this Navy attitude with you two. Uh, it's got to end now. All right, so the second after Peggy's just like, I'm not going to have lunch with you, Paul. Get lost. Um, but she does it diplomatically. Uh, Joan kind of comes up and she says what we're all thinking is like that lunch is making me sad. And she kind of co-ops Peggy into having lunch with the coworkers. Uh, very relatable scene. I don't know if you two have ever been in this situation where you brought your lunch. You just want to be left alone. Maybe this is just me. But uh, a bunch of people are just like, no, we're going to go have lunch and we're going to go be social. And introverted John is just like, uh, OK. Yeah, that's like you're introverted. You. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm super introverted. It is, it is. I wouldn't say being introverted. I I remember. So my I work for a tech startup, and you know, vi- very Stanley on brand. Yeah. They buy us lunch. They buy the whole company lunch when you're in the office, and so you get your lunch delivered. And so every it's day? Just like, yeah, every day they buy us lunch. Oh my gosh. And uh, 
but because all the food gets delivered at once, everybody picks up the food. So like it kind of creates this environment where everybody is supposed to eat together. But in my first two weeks, that's such an unappealing thing to do. You don't know people. You're not trying to meet everybody at once. You're supposed to get to know people. You got to like, you know, cloister in, you know, find a little click that looks interesting. Sorry. No, thank you. I have a super rotten banana at my desk. I'm trying to scarf <laughs> yeah, down. Clearly. All right. Um, I don't I don't know. I know, Will, you I don't think you've ever worked at a startup, but, uh, you know, no, I have worked uh, once at a cubicle for an internship. That's probably as close as I can get to this mentality that you're referring to. Hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so the boys are like, oh, let's take a, let's take you to lunch. We have plenty more uh, casual misogyny. We get a Pete Campbell mention where, uh, you know, he sent them a postcard from Niagara Falls. I do really appreciate how Roger is just sort of like, wow, how uninspired is that or unimaginative? Wait, you're talking about the, the, oh, where he's choosing to go or the pun that he makes where it's the wettest place on earth? Which one are you referring to? The pun is just, just atrocious. Like, well, it's true. I'm not defending the that? pun. I'm asking a question. You can tell that P. Campbell is not a writer. He's an account executive. That's for sure. Um, but no, just like when Roger's like making fun of him, because there's a point in the episode where they're doing the Dick Nixon account and they're like, oh, and I'm going to warn you. Roger's like, I'm warning you right away. You know, P. Campbell is going to be the guy on this. And, and Don is just like, man, I should I should go to Niagara for like two weeks. You know, he'll do wonders for my career. And then Roger is just sort of like, what an unimaginative place to go for your honeymoon. Um, I, I say that as I've never been to Niagara Falls. It's probably stunning, but I've always found it kind of um, I've odd. I've been on both sides of the Niagara Falls. What's it like? Uh, is it nice. really the wettest place on earth? I don't mean that sexually. Uh, I, I, no comment. Um, but uh, I would That's say that smart. I went to both sides of the Niagara Falls uh, in middle school. First two separate trips. And mm. uh, I will say that um, the American side, I think, is a little bit more adventurous because you actually get to go underneath the um, like the the river proper. Well, and also if you have to go to like, the hospital, you don't have health care. So plenty more adventurous. Uh, yeah, that's true. If, if someone came barreling down uh, from the Canadian side to the American side, that would be... Uh, quite a heavy toll to bear but i don't, I don't think mike um, approves my universal health care political joke <laughs> he's just kind of looking like no i was i, I thought barreling down was a very funny term <laughs> uh ken cosgrove puts the moves on peggy this is this is gonna... such a funny like i i know i said this last week but ken cosgrove what a weirdo in th- these first couple episodes is that the the tall lanky one? Yeah, he he was the guy I know in the, in the game you never played with Ashen called La Noir. He's the main character. Oh, in that. Okay, because he's really not like he doesn't have any defining characteristics in the pilot. It's a he's performance. Sort of there. It it so is, and like it's something that I don't think I really caught when I first watched the the first season for the first time. Is that is this is not really who he is? Like he's acting. Are you, you talking the character or the actor? The character. Okay. Obviously I would hope that, that the actor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, they didn't even give him a script. If you're, just if like, you're talking about the actor, they, they, like, had, they had oh, to edit John. the line. He was like, hey, Elizabeth, let's get out of here. Go to the zoo. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you're talking about the actor, I'd be like, oh, John, you sweet summer <laughs> child. You don't realize they're all acting. There is no Don Draper. <laughs> this is a documentary, right, guys? 
I uh, thought I thought Harry Crane was a lot creepier than Ken Cosgrove. I think there's nothing really? creepier than a dude who's joining in on the misogyny, but then every chance he gets being like, but I'm, I'm married. I'm, I'm married. I'm married. Yeah. You see this ring? It's okay. Show me your tits. Harry Harry Crane, we're oof, we're gonna get a lot of Harry Crane later. And and by the way, so Harry Crane is played by uh, what's this guy's name? I'm gonna look it up real His fast. His name is Guy from the Office. Guy from Guy Arts. from the Office. Thank you. That's such a like a, a Christian name, uh, of course. Um, I'm not seeing it on this list. It's here. Rich. Oh, here Summer. we go. Rich Summer. Rich Summer. Every other thing I've ever seen him in, he only, in my opinion, he only ever takes away from other shows that he shows up in. Mad Men is like the one show where I think that the casting is perfect and the character is spot on. But in every other show, like Love, The Office, like you mentioned, Glow, like all these other shows where he shows up, I just, I see this guy and I don't see the character he's playing. I just see Harry Crane. And I think it's Mad Men. I think Mad Men like ruined this guy for me, but I don't know if that is just me. It is just he. I literally see him as oh. Pam's friend from art school. Like that's where I saw him. I saw that <laughs> first from art school. Yeah. He's literally like in like two or three scenes from the office. <laughs> but he, I, he made such a lasting impression on. He does. He does. He's like, guys, let's. Oh, my ex girlfriend's over there, and it's just like, really, dude? Like, you're drawing attention to that? Anyway, we'll talk about the office at another time. Just you and me, and Mike. Um. Okay. So. They have like their little lunch. Uh, Ken puts the moves on Peggy. And I guess we haven't really talked about it yet, but I mean, Peggy's still kind of hung up on Pete. She's a little bit like, hey, this guy who literally is on his honeymoon. Uh, although uh, that's my question, actually, for you, Mike. Do you think Peggy really, because later in the, this episode, she's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm spoken for kind of right. Do you think, though, that she actually is into Pete at this point? Or do you think she's using that as a way to like get Paul to leave her along? So there's three clues the show gives you, right? So the first one is, oh, he's on his honeymoon, right? It's, your, it's his first mention of it. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. that seems fishy. That seemed like a little bit forced and nonchalant to get information, but act like you don't care, right? And then you get the the kiss uh, where mm-hmm. he misconstrues. I, I love the line when, she, when he thinks it's Dawn. And he gets so intimidated, he says, oh, I don't even like to sit in Dawn's chair. <laughs> and and misconstrue is being generous. I think that he like completely misreads the situation and every possible like but so she, clearly in the friend zone uh, yeah but he she does confirm he says but you are spoken for and as she's closing the door mm. right she says i am and then you get the wettest place on earth in in betty's uh in yeah. betty's top drawer i guess i just struggle to like at this point in the show really believe that she's that into pete maybe it's because pete is so pathetic and it's hard to like wrap my head around it, but I don't know. It is, it is weird, right? It does. The show doesn't give you a lot of evidence for it. They must have had a really fun night. I don't know. Like he must have been really good at. And I, what were you gonna say, Will? Well, I had a question about the postcard, and I, I was wondering if I missed something when I was watching this. Where oh, so by uh, wettest place on earth? No, 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 So when a daddy waterfall is <laughs> a mommy waterfall. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, when. They go out to lunch like just before they post the postcard on the board, but yeah, then yeah. like it's in the desk. And I was wondering like how exactly did someone put it in her desk? No, Peggy or, took it. Okay, so it's implied that she took the yeah, postcard. Yeah, she swiped that noise because she okay. was there when he put it up and she was like, that's mine. I want to smoke. Okay, it. so she it's just implied that she took. I just didn't 
know if I missed something or if that was the implication I was supposed to. I get. think so. And I think that bolsters Mike's argument that like, yeah, okay. she's hung up on this guy. Fair yeah, and, I, and at first I was also double checking that she also didn't get one herself, but it was the same one. Mm. Yeah, that was my. Yeah, because he wouldn't have said well, no, I mean, just to her. Well, you see the hers the name, would say right? second witness. Well, don't you see like the name that's addressed to in the same shot? So it's supposed to be the same card. Yeah, I yeah, I just didn't true. know if it was given to her and the, it was just implied, or if she took it. I just wasn't one hundred percent sure if I missed something there. I'll I'll give her a phone call just to confirm. Yeah. Hey, Elizabeth, it's me again. Um. Okay. So in this next scene, we we meet Francine. That rhymes. And Francine, who is played by oh gosh, I don't remember her name either. I need to write these things down clearly. But uh, she's somebody we we saw. She was in the show House. I don't know if either of you were ever into the show House. You worry and all that. And uh, Dudek. It was I mean, a day. But, oh, literally. And Dudek. And Dudek. Thank you. Literally, I brought up House last time. But sure. Let's calm down, Malash. Right? Yeah. There's no you, need. To, I, we I don't need to fight. I used House as an analogy. But sure, go ahead. And I'm just saying House was she, in its heyday when we, you know, this show was airing. She was also um, in Bosch. If we want to bring up shows we mention every week. Sure. <laughs> there you uh, go. How do you feel about Bosch, John? I, I mentioned last week. I've never seen Bosch. Okay, I've heard it's I good. About that. Amazon Prime and all that. Bosch. Well, you've, you've seen Reacher, which is why I ask. Yeah. yeah. Bosch sort of started this whole. People act like Jack Ryan started this trend, but it was Bosch. Jack Reacher. Oh, so, you're talking about the um, the Jim Krasinski, not Jim Krasinski. Yeah, John there's Krasinski. Jack Ryan, which people act as if yeah, like yeah. that was the, the jumpstart, but it was Bosch. It was Bosch. You're right. Yeah. 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 Aren't they all like operatives of a federal agency, though, in those shows? Bosch They're is all just... cops. Defund. I'm talking about the trend where like an airplane novel character, like an Alex Cross type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's turned into a series. And I'm surprised they actually haven't picked up the rights Alex Cross and turned him into the next uh, Jack Ryan. Well, they did with the other Richard. Alex. Alex Ryan. or Al- Not True. Alex Ryan. Alex uh, Ryder. That was it. Sure. If you say they, so. They did that with that guy, too. That was IMDb, though, right? I thought that was, in, that was IMDb TV. But through Amazon. Mr. Mercedes. Well, that was, actually, uh, that first season is pretty good. But um, speaking of first seasons, I guess I watched the show Mad Men. There's a character in it named Francine, and there's a a fascinating conversation between her and Betty in this, which, again, more and more set up for like, okay, Betty's depressed, and the show is just basically setting up like she has the the home life. She has the Norman Norman Rockwell uh, painting sort of like situation, the kids and idyllic, all that good stuff. But then Francine kind of leaves this like little barb, you know, where she's like, oh, there's this uh, divorcee who just moved in. And Betty's kind of like, what? And it's like a, a nine, a nine year old and a baby. And so we got to put a pin on that because that's going to be pretty important later. And then we have our 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 first egregious. By the way, it's the 60s moment where they're like, oh, the kids have been, uh, you know, <laughs> the kids are being a little bit too quiet. And then uh, Ernie comes out and he's like, we're playing Spaceman. And a uh, nice little illusion, of course, to later in the episode when Don is sort of talking about like the Spaceman and the cowboy thing and like kids being the future. And it's fine. I, it's fun. Um, but we get Kiernan Shipka. She's here. And I think that was Kiernan Shipka in the pilot. Maybe not. Uh, there's a little bit of like uh, a mystery around who that kid was in the first episode. I could have done more sleuthing, but I didn't. But this is our first like full on for sure. It's Kiernan Shipka. She's Sally Draper. 
uh, iconic role. I think, Will, you messaged me while you were watching this and you were just like, she's going to be a star. Well, I was making fun of like the like man, big cigar, like that kid's going to be a star. You don't understand, huh? You don't understand. She's going to be in the pitches. She's going to be in the big, she's going to be in Sabrina, the teenage witch. Yeah, she's going to be Sabrina. The Reaper, I tell (laughs) you. She's not credited in the first episode. I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I couldn't find who was. And it was one of those things where she was so young. I, I, Michael, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't think it was her. I'm looking. I'm looking. All right. Well, while you do your little fact check, she comes out in the dryer bag, uh, which, you know, just seeing that. I remember the first time I saw that. It was like 2011. And I was just like, say what? She's like, she can't breathe. And it's just like, uh, you know, that's what kid, that's what the kids were doing. And, you know, Betty's just sort of like, Sally Draper, come over here this minute. If my clothes are on the floor. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was fun. That was good. That was I, good. Well, there's, you don't mention it. There's two, this is the sixties moment in that scene alone. I said the two. first, but that the she's first smoking one, while pregnant. And she's smoking while pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that one. Great reveal. She gets up. She has the, yeah. Oh, and, fancy. But, and that one plays just as like, okay, fuck, you got me. It's the 60s, right? Also, like, good cinematography. <laughs> like you're trying shot. to get out of it, Mike. Like, okay, fine. You're yeah. right. <laughs> I thought I thought the closing was very funny. Because <laughs> it, it totally funny. sets you up, right? You're expecting it. And then, yeah, the dry cleaning. I don't know. You, you can coach. I, was, I thought it was fun. Great, great acting from Kiernan Shipka. I know, Will, you're not the biggest fan of Kiernan Shipka. You said what? negative things about her in the past. What? <laughs> Yeah, have, you, have you said that Joey King should have played her. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are referring to. I think you're making light of me. Uh, I do think I Karen gonna... and Shipka, I, we don't see her in enough things in general. I think Say Sabrina... Shipka one more time. Shipka? Is that, <laughs> am I saying it wrong? What you... No, you just, you, just, you just say it every time. Karen and Shipka. Karen and Shipka. What's her name? I don't know. You're making it sound like I'm saying it exasperating, like I can barely get through it. Um, she's Shipka. fantastic. Like Remember the, the name. You remember that name, Shipka? I gave up on Sabrina the Teenage Witch because I was like, this show is diluted. Like, I don't know what in the world is going on here. I gave up. But I don't think I've seen her in anything since, and that's a shame. I don't know who to blame. She uh, was supposed to be in a Quibi version of Swimming with Sharks. Oh, Quibi? When's that coming out? Uh, Can I download it? Right uh, after the relaunch of Movie Pass. <laughs> Just a quarter <laughs> after actually, never. that's happening, Mike. So. I, I know. That's a joke. Um, but the joke is, I don't think we'll ever be downloading Quibi again, Mike. You're you're more optimistic than I. Well, didn't all the Quibi stuff go to the Roku channel or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so maybe it'll be on Roku one day. But that was the last thing I remember hearing that she was going to be in. Her, so like know. Sophie Turner, too. We haven't seen her. I mean, she had she had a baby, so we had to give her a little bird. But she She's got a break to the Jonas me, brother. Correct me if I'm wrong as well. Yeah, it was Joe. It was Joe Jonas. No, no, no. no Nick was, was married to. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, I thought yeah. Joe was married. To, okay. No, yeah, no Tra- guys. I literally just got a cat on Tuesday and named him after Kevin Jonas. <laughs> so let me tell you about the bros. I'll defer Keep to you because I. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't talked to Joe or Nick in in quite a while. It's been a few weeks. Yeah. What was the what's the third one? Nick? Wait, wait, no, who? we said Nick. Kevin, Nick, and Joe. Kevin, talking, Nick, and Joe. We said all three. Kevin, oh, Kevin, Kevin's the oldest run, right? The, that was the yeah. one that was like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you're going to be a very sorry young man. <laughs> For right. what? I don't know. I'm just quoting the show. 
Um, but yeah, so then Francie and Betty are sort of having their quib- quibbles about, you know, like, oh, you know, the the house prices are going to go down because there's a divorcee on the street. And then right after this, Betty has her famous car accident scene, terribly shot car accident, <laughs> because like clearly like there's so much damage on the car. But like, obviously, like she wasn't like the way it's shot. It's like there's no way she was going fast enough for like the car to be in that much of a shape or whatever. That- but it's fine. Well, two thoughts on this scene. Okay. Uh, one related to what you're talking about. I give him some slack because that's like a pristine 50s car, 60s. Well, I guess a car would technically be 50s, right? Takes place 50s, in the 60s. Probably. But, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, so they were like probably under strict regulations. Like, you do not mess up this car. Like, sure, I know sure. this is a car crash scene, but you're going to like make sure you don't act. very diplomatic, if you will. I appreciate that. Okay. Um, but also, it's another. Uh, like Mike was talking about another like 60s thing where it's like they're jumping up and down the streets because I guess seatbelts were invented until I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, you messaged me and you were just like, Don Draper needs to advertise seatbelts. These, these dang seatbelts. That's what he needs to advertise. Because That's you know, what it was what, like back then, wasn't it? Like yeah. kids were just kind of like running around. Well, like it's in true. Yeah. Around but, the back seats. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I thought that was like kind of like the point. Like, like that's why. What's the name of the son? Um, I know Sally's Bobby. name the dog. Bobby, like he's like literally jumping up like front and back to seat because it's like this is a time before seatbelts. So yeah, you yeah, better believe this is the sixties, baby. I've always wondered if they would ever get to like why like the naming conventions of those two kids because like Sally, okay, but why? Well, why Bobby? Well, they all have to have why, I guess, because like Betty, Bobby, Sally, Donnie, Donnie, sure, <laughs> as he's known. Yeah, yeah, that's what I call them. Um, but no, so Betty sees Helen Bishop, the the new neighbor. She's moving boxes and everything like that. And she has her like sort of like panic. It, it's not a panic attack, I guess. It's just sort of like her hands are going numb. And my read on this has always been that Betty has all of this anxiety. She has all of this depression and this emotion inside that she is not processing. Um, I think that she hates being a housewife clearly she hates her life she's miserable but she can't accept that she's miserable and unhappy because what the life she's living is exactly what she was told her whole life is what is the ideal this is what she has always wanted it's the the sad end to a fairy tale like you got exactly what you were told that you should want and it's not enough and then she sees this woman who has no husband has her two kids and she has her own house and she's doing her own thing and she's making a go of it. And Betty is is clearly unable to sort of like cope with that idea. And so like the only way for all of that anxiety to come out is physically because that's how it works. It's like, if you can't process it emotionally, it's going to happen to you physically. That's how anxiety works. That's why it's a big deal. And I think the show gets that across pretty well without saying it straight up. So I, I give the show major, this episode, major props on that account. I think that it, it's pretty well handled here. But I don't know, Mike, you're shaking your head. You're just being like, John, you're totally wrong. You're just, it's fine. You know, you go Yeah, no, no, John, I don't know that if, why you got that read. I often do think you're wrong, but actually not in that moment. <laughs> oh, uh, is this the exception? This is the exception. <laughs> There's a blue moon outside. proves the rule. Um... Yeah, no, I also I, I, I also think it's good for 2007, right? 
I think mental health was still a big stigma even back then, especially oh, yeah. talking about psychosomatic symptoms like numb hands, right? Oh, what um, a term, psychosomatic. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I got a degree. Yeah, so smart. But uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I also think it just her so nonchalantly bringing up with multiple people about how she lost her mom. Um, I'm lucky enough. Yeah, to like nobody cares. She <laughs> keeps bringing it up. She's like, my mom died. And people are just like, yeah, how many people die? Move on. <laughs> no, no, no but literally strikes. Literally the person, the only person who says, I'm sorry, is somebody who's being like, you got to leave. <laughs> it's like the mirror, like not even Mona will just be like, I'm sorry. She's literally saying to this psychiatrist, a trained professional, somebody who's supposed to be like, I'm, you know, showing her empathy, showing her anything. And they just say nothing. It, it reminds me that whole psychiatrist scene. It reminds me of like whenever I've come to Will and I've been like, Will, I've got all these problems. And he's just like writing his little notepad. And I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's writing. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> forward you. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought you were going to be like, actually, it's the other way around, John. I, hmm. Um. Okay, so Don is sleeping with Midge again, and I mentioned earlier that I think As that you, he yeah. is wont to do. I mean, he literally he, he's insatiable. I mean, it's the second time this episode he's had sex with Midge. Yeah, yeah. Because this is when, but yeah, no, this is the first. This is the first time. Uh, oh, because okay. the yeah the second time is coming up later, and I think the second time is more indicative than the first because when this happens, it's right after Betty's gotten into a car accident and like the kids are kind of just like we're fine. That's right, and it cuts to him, and you're like, this is what Don him. was doing at that time. Yeah, and it's like they can't get a hold of him because he's out, of, and this is why he was out of the office, and like why Peggy was just like ah you know Don's not here. Um, or I guess that's coming up later, actually. But no, this is this is interesting because you could at this point be like, why is Don doing this? Is he just doing it because he's horny? And I think the answer is no. I don't think he's I don't think this is a purely physical thing for him because this episode gets across that like he has sex with Betty pretty regularly, right? Like and he, he shows the signs of wanting it. So there has to be something else going on here. It's not purely physical. And this is the heart of why I think Mad Men is a great show. Because I think that and when it comes to like why guys do terrible things, and guys, Mike, Will, our gender, we, we, we do some pretty bad stuff. We, we have some gamer moments between. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know what do I'm you talking about. Say um, gamer moments. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard know. that, Will? No. Yeah, sometimes people have gamer moments. Uh, you know, like, Will, when you've ever played, like, a video game, and then you sure. have, like, a, an improper emotional response to the video game, you wouldn't, know, you haven't been playing Elden Ring. That's what it is. So, when, like, you're playing Mario Party 2, and the other person hasn't played it. <laughs> yeah, in the year is 2003. Have. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, in, in the year 2022, and you're trying to explain <laughs> it to them, and they don't understand how it works. Or yeah, how you get super mad at them, 64. and you're just like, I'm not friends with you anymore. Nintendo that's what it for, is. Yeah. So that's a gamer moment. All that to say, I think that men do terrible things for complex reasons. And I think sometimes it's oversimplified why men, you know, like why traditionally, this is something I've always been curious about because like, I, you know, we already talked about in this episode, I'll open up. Puerto Rican men, we, we're, whew, let me tell you, like Latino culture, specifically Puerto Rican, like, so many affairs 
in like my extended family. It's it's ridiculous. And I've always been curious about it. It's like what drives men to do these things? So like to break their commitments, to like pursue these things. And a lot of the time, and you know, rightfully, because I think it's the case plenty of times, men are just doing it because, you know, like they want to get some action and they are just very inconsiderate and they will betray other people to get what they want because they're selfish. But I think that there are other things going on too, like deeper underlying emotional traumas that men have that like society just doesn't care about. Like men don't help each other at all. Like we're not emotionally supportive with each other. We don't talk to each other about stuff. And I love Mad Men because this was the first time I ever watched a show where, and I felt like, I know, say what you want about Matthew Weiner. I think the guy has some like very, very deep devils and demons and all of that. But I think that he's somebody who does understand that. He, he understands that like the things that make a Don Draper happen to a lot of us. And guys, we, we need each other. And so this is my pitch. You know, I'm making a little bit of a pitch to you, to Will, to Mike Overholz. Like guys, you know, I need you. I need your help. That's all there is to it. Emotionally, psychosomatically. I, uh, I, I got a thing. I'm out Wait, of the what? office. I'm out of the office. Sorry. Yeah, go. I got to go. Bye. <laughs> all right. Well, well, Mike, Mike is signing off. I, I don't know what, um, what that means. I'm just kidding, buddy. I love you. That's the beauty of Mad Men. It brings people together. It brings guys together, doesn't it? It brings three guys together to do a podcast. What's better than this? You think just don't. guys being dudes? There you go. So that was my little that was my little rant about toxic masculinity. What are you gonna do? Uh, this is a great scene too because Midge throws a TV outside the window, and you know Don oh, being boy. super possessive of her. Yeah, I I already said this to you, John, but I won't. Just imagine them in the editing room, adding some extra foley to the scene and. Just imagine, like, you know, how fun that would be to be in the other room. You can add, like, meow, or like, hey, well, I'm walking here, or like, you know, any other num- any noises or phrases. They have, like, stocks. Yeah, yeah. They just, like, downloaded it. <laughs> yeah. What, what would or be the best of guys? Or, like, Wait, that's going to leave a mark, or. <laughs> yeah, that's a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, my lake. Or, like, any. <laughs> the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is such a great scene, too, because, like, there are two things going on here. A, Don is being a dick, and there there is a double meaning to that that I won't get into right now. But he is. He's being a jerk to Midge because he literally has a wife, and he's giving her trouble because clearly, like, some guy gave her a TV, and he can't stand it. But there's also something else going on here. I'm curious if you guys picked up on this, too. Don sees her as a free spirit. Whenever he's having any sort of like creative crisis, he dives into sex with free-spirited, authentic people. That's my read of this. And it's something that I think is, is more complicated that I'm sort of maybe alluding to right now. But I do think that Don has this very clear modus where he's like, okay, my work is easier. Like I'm a better creative person. When I sleep with these authentic, I'm saying that in quotes, like free spirited New York artists, bohemian people, because it sparks creativity is what do you guys think of that read? Well, I think that kind of gets into what I see as being one of the central conflicts of this first season, which is that Don Draper is like this old fashioned man who's coming in conflict with the budding 
ideals of the 60s, which push back against the traditionalism of the 50s and kind of have a more rollicking free spirit. Yeah, if he had his way, he wouldn't be married and have kids, right? He would have just he would just be in New York right now, not married to anybody and just sort of doing his own thing. But he he does have that Norman Rockwell painting life Mm -hmm. because that is what he thinks he has to have in order to be the person he is right now. Well, sure. I mean, he's like kind of like caught between two different worlds, but he is also a product of the 40s and 50s as well, as I'm sure the show will dive into later. Sure. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, he is like kind of caught between these two ideals, but he grew up in a more traditional time span where he's, you know, men were kind of put in the boxes and have this certain ideal. And then, you know, she's obviously like a hippie and more of a free spirit. And she seems more in tune with her humanity and her emotions, things that, John has been, you know, preconditioned to kind of lock up for a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. I think I think I, I tied this this read and this moment back to the very first scene where um, Don calls himself Moses. Um, mm-hmm. You know, very, very well-known story and idea, you know, the life of Moses, right, floated as a baby down a river. And then just swept up into this life that yeah, wasn't he, his, he's right? in a land. Yeah, he does. He this is all learned for him. This is not like organic to who he is. He's in a totally foreign location. And right. And so then he has the choice to profit off of this position. He finds himself in this foreign land or make make a life for himself. Right. And I think you're seeing mm-hmm. in this scene the beginnings of Don regretting the the life that he did choose. Yeah. And I think the rest of the show is going to get so good at really stressing this point and making it even clear. So, yeah, we we are just like crawling through this episode. So I do apologize. Uh, I'm going to kind of speed it up here. Right. Because um, because, again, I, I think this is going to get harder and harder because the show is so dense and so layered. I feel like we could spend hours and hours on it. We're not even halfway through this episode, which is. uh you know, something else. So I kind of want to just like speed run it a little bit. We we, we kind of touched on a bunch of stuff that happens in the next couple scenes. Basically, Don is trying to sort of like reconcile with Betty's accident. The fact that he wasn't there. He obviously is like trying to overcompensate. He's trying to sort of tell her. He has like a little speech to her where he's like, well, you know, like. Why would you be unhappy? Why would you need therapy? Because that's what she tells him. She's like. You know, I need therapy. You know, the the doctor said that I, you know, this problem. You know, I should probably go to a therapist. And he lashes out at her. He gets super upset with her. Like he even tells her, like, "Don't do the dishes. Do that for the girl." Like clearly, he's just like he doesn't know where to like place his anger in this moment. He tries to make it up to her later. He tries to be like, ah, you know, uh, we have such a great life. You know, he tries to be just like, why would you be sad? You know, look at all the things that you have. And it's like, yeah, it's it's the sixties, right? It's like these typical attitudes of like not understanding what causes people to be unhappy and how materialism and on all of these things just have limits and they don't really make people happy. But not only that, but I think he like takes Betty's mental health problems. as like almost like a personal failure. Like it's a fault of his that she is ailing in some respect. Like it It makes him look bad. It makes him hate failure. I said it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true yeah but it's like but he just sees it as like a personal failure as opposed to betty's problems like he yeah. takes it internally and that's things. obviously yeah yeah he's like oh i'm not making you happy enough he's making it all about him 
But look at the stigma even the stigma even later when he's speaking with John Slattery's character, when he, he brings up again, like, oh, you said your daughter went to a psychiatrist. And very quickly he gets a blunt, you must be mistaken. Right? It's not just and, Don. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a whole thing, you know, where Betty's even telling Don, it's like, you should confide in Roger more. She's she's giving him advice on how to get closer to his boss. How to sort of like get Roger to be like more on his team to like be better friends with him so that they can get to that four seasons life that they talk about. But it's so one sided. She does so much for him. And to him, he's just like, he's just such a selfish human being. Like he doesn't care about her happiness for the sake of her happiness. He cares about it in terms of like, well, you know, you should be happy. You know, he feels entitled to her happiness. It's such a very odd thing we're kind of getting into like second wave feminism a little bit here in in terms of like you know how the show is sort of presenting uh certain characters but i think it's really profound stuff because like again it, it, it's such a weird era of time when women were forced into these boxes forced into these scenarios where it just looks like they have no like easy way out yeah and i think that also kind of gets i mean i'll dance around this rather gently i feel like that kind of gets into the surprise and disappointment of Matthew Weiner's like the allegations against him, like knowing that he's yeah. written such a sensitive episode. And then like you hear some of the allegations where he has like certain expectations of women staff members. And it's like, not that I think that anything he writes this episode is necessarily like artificial, but it just, you know, it just kind of paints the portrayal of like how complicated artists can be. Yeah. You Absolutely. see, uh, you see a lot of that in like some of these other characters, right? That kind of the classic, uh, I don't know. I guess you 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 write about the things you know in in some some sorts of fashion. So, anyways, well, I mean, it's just that like yeah. you know, comparing him to like someone like Aaron Sorkin, who like he can be a great writer, but it seems like he even when he writes spoken women, he like those characters also like like kept some of his own sort of like internalized masculinity is often even presented when he writes women characters. But like in this episode, you see such complex and nuanced portrayals of women in the workplace and all that stuff. And then you just hear about things in his own personal workspace. And it's just yeah, yeah. all the more disappointing for that reason. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. He suffers from the things that he preaches about, you know? And I think that that's a lesson to all of us, in my opinion, that, you know, you can talk a great game and, you know, myself included. And, uh, you know, obviously like, you know, we're full of failures, you know, human beings that matter to the gender. Um, and in particular, we have a very specific set of problems. And I love pop culture like this because it gets us to grapple with some of this stuff a little bit. And it makes us, you know, talk about this stuff in general in ways that like, you know, it, it, to me, it's like very helpful. It's like it's catharsis to go through this exercise of watching these shows and seeing yourself in it and seeing yourself and sort of like, you know what? I've been in that situation where I've been that person in the background while the guys were making the jokes. and I didn't say anything, you know, and I, I, I love shows like this because it just exposes that. And that kind of, you know, funny enough, that leads into the next scene, which my favorite scene in the whole episode, probably, where if the first episode was all about Don being the guy trying to pitch the client, this scene is where Paul Kinsey and Sal, Ken, they're trying to pitch Don. So we get a little bit of like, what is life like at Sterling Cooper in between the big meetings when the copywriters and the art directors and those folks are trying to get the head of creative to buy into the idea, right? And they have an idea that they're going to make it all about uh, what the deodorant we were talking about earlier. They're going to make it space age. The fact that it's like a new technology, it's logical 
in a sense, right? The logic of like, well, let's sell deodorant like a space age thing. It's the 1960s, but they're trying to sell it to Don, who's just sort of like, well, who buys this? You know, not a not a person who just like sees deodorant as like a futuristic thing. It's like, that's why I'm going to buy that. It's futuristic. He's just sort of being like, no, women are going to buy this. He 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 says, like, let's bring it down to Earth. And Paul gets like super deflated because he's the sci-fi Twilight Zone fan. You know, he just wants to make an ad with an astronaut in it, which is like super transparent. Um, you know, this show, this show does so many great ad pitches in general in terms of like the psychology of like how to get people to say yes to your pitch and how all that works. This is the first time I think that we really get a good overview of that life in the advertising world. So, you know, as somebody in that world myself, this is very true to life. But I love how it's not black and white because on the one hand, Don makes a lot of sense in this scene. And I want to get you to, you, you know, your read on it for sure. Both of you. He's right. That like trying to go the space route. It's like, you're missing the demographic. You're missing like, who's actually buying this? Why would people, you know, what, what would actually like get this thing sold? Uh, but at the same time, he's also super wrong <laughs> because he's just sort of like, ah, you know, you know, what do women want? Maybe a cowboy, you know, like I had like Toy Story flashbacks where like Andy is like choosing between Woody and Buzz Lightyear and like just this sort of like, oh, women want a cowboy. They want a stoic sort of like, you know, the future scares people. And Don can't see that like, no, that's not the case at all. Like we already sort of like established earlier in the episode how like, you know, the future is something that excites certain people. So what, what were y'all's reads on this? I'm gonna start with you, Mike. Yeah, I actually, this is my favorite scene in the whole episode, too. I have a little bit different read on it because it doesn't, to me, I saw this as another scene where Don was being selfish. Where. Oh, yeah, because he's putting his personal life into this. Exactly. Instead of bringing, you know, his work home, he's bringing his oh, home yeah. to work. And I Clearly, think on with it's Betty, so obvious. Oh, my God. It, it's bothering him so I mean, that's what do women want, right? That's what he's trying to figure out. He's so flabbergasted yeah. with Betty. That he just goes and, and shits on these guys' work, which exactly you know ends up you know working out them because you're right, he is right. That, that it wasn't that great of an idea, right? It's a good first pitch, but there's something more to it. Sure, sure. Don just keeps asking what women want. If only he were around in 2000 when Nancy Meyer made a film with Mel Gibson, and he would have all the answers <laughs> that he's seeking. All the last. answers, every yeah. single one. Uh, he would never have to wonder about the the female gender again. Is that what you're saying? I, I do. I just love it. He's just like, who's this moron? He pees in his pants. <laughs> and I love it because it's like, we're not used to that. You know, like the three of us, we were born in the 90s. You know, like we we have no context for what what life was like before American astronauts landed on the moon. Right. So like, I, I love that Matthew Weiner brings that into this. That's sort of like stubborn sort of old-fashioned like don't you watch tv on tv at this time it's like westerns you know it's cowboys and like that's what's influencing don you know what i mean that at what least a girl me, wants, i can't what stop a girl needs whatever makes it happen um there's a great scene after this where paul walks peggy through the sort of like how sterling cooper operates uh, i love this it, it feels a little bit to me like Matthew Weiner's just kind of showing off like this is our set and this set really cool. It, it's a little sad because like so much of what we see in this whole montage, not a montage, but like a walkthrough, really, we don't really see the rest of like the series at well, all. 
that's what I was wondering. Because, like, do you happen to know how long it was between production on the pilot and production on the second episode? About a year. Okay. So oh, like, no. They had the, to, no, about six months. About six months, yeah. They have to rebuild the set, or do they still have the set between... They still have it. Okay. No, no, they did not. They filmed in L.A. No, the pilot is the only episode they film in New York, and everything else is in L.A., so they rebuilt it. Okay, I was going to say, I mean, they did a pretty good job rebuilding the set, I mean, between, you know, two episodes. It seemed fairly seamless, you know. No, I agree. And, um, yeah, I guess I misunderstood the original question. But I I love how Paul kind of just, like, he's, he's taking Peggy through this, and they're they're trying to like sort of like repair sort of like the awkwardness of how she sort of blew him off the day before or whatever. But I love how this scene also gets across how the advertising client relationship works, where the, he even mentions like the creative is thrown in for free. You know, the jingles, the, you know, Don Draper's job, it's basically worth nothing. Like what they're buying is media space at a huge markup. That's where the money comes in. And yeah, that's advertising. That's how it works. And I, I love it. I, I love how it's just sort of boiled down in that way because it's so true to like, you know, it's not glamorous. It's not this sort of like, well, we're on H we're on no, I was gonna say HBO. I meant AMC. <laughs> but obviously they're going for like an HBO sort of prestige kind of feel, AMC at the time and still today. Um I'd love it because it really is capturing, I think, or it's sort of like uh, demystifying the advertising world in a really profound way, I thought. Have you ever had, like, what's your, what is the dumbest advertisement or ad that has worked on you? Do you, like, have a thought to that? There's so many. I don't even know how to, like, narrow it down. (laughs) I've literally just, like, like, I just didn't happen. But, like, I'm the kind of person, like, after watching Uncharted, because there's a whole scene in a Papa John's. And I'll just be like, man, what a terrible scene. I can't believe they filmed that whole, it's Barcelona and they're in a Papa John's. I'd be like, this is terrible. As I'm walking to Papa John's, pick up some cheesy bread. Like, oh, Papa John's, terrible. And I like buy some cheesy bread. I mean, if this episode wasn't so long, I would continue talking about how bizarre that scene is. But, you know, that's not Mad Men. Come back soon. Yeah. I do love that they chose for Paul. I love Paul Kinsey's like, I'm going to be orson wells for some reason like he would be a great orson wells in general that actor but you know he does like the pipe you know he like tries to do he mentioned the twilight zone tries to do the rod sterling thing he tries to be this mystifying sort of presence uh this of mm-hmm. course is like taking place 20 years after citizen kane comes out but still sure also, also i have bad news for him in regards to cbs pulling the plug on twilight zone <laughs> That's right. That's one of well, the. Zone still had some time left after. Yeah, but I feel like that was one of the jokes that was like, I generally think the cutesy stuff doesn't really bother me. That was the one where I was like, yeah, okay, we get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I did appreciate, uh, you know, his whole thing where it's just like, yeah, there's this like whole advertising agency where all they do is smoke weed and like they're probably the best in the business. <laughs> smoke Mary Jane, you mean to say? Well, you know, it's 2022, Wash, and I have to say. I can say what I want. Well, if, if you're going to quote the line, I mean. All right. All right. Um, we get the scene where Don and Roger talk about taking the Nixon campaign. I love Roger's answer to the question, what women want, just because it's so true to his character. And it's the most honest answer I think any character would have given if they had been asked this question. What do women want? 
And Roger answers, who cares? And it's like, yeah, because he's honest. He, he literally he's being himself, his terrible, horrific, monstrous self. And he's doing it in the most charming, affable way. And I think that sums up the episode. I think when it comes to misogyny, there can just sort of be this, you know, I even said it earlier in the episode, sort of disarmingly, like, like boys will be boys. There's this attitude of like when misogyny happens, uh, people just being like, well, it's fine. You know, guys don't know any better. And this this whole moment to me is Matthew Weiner saying like, guys do know better. Like they know. They know like when they say things like, oh, who cares? They're just sort of being like, I don't care. And, you know, I could I could understand. I could know that I don't care enough to find out. And at perfection. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of like also in the same hand. of like this shit's been happening a long time. So mm-hmm. like quit making the same excuses. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, Don starts drinking because not even like an occasion, you know, like like us boys, you know, because he's hanging out with Roger. Uh, he and Roger would make a great podcast, I think. Um, Sterling Cooper, the podcast. Be a lot of uh, ice clinks and coughing from cigarettes. Yep. Um, Don comes home. The kids are watching People Are Funny, which Midge mentioned earlier. He goes to Betty and she offers him some cold lamb which I literally wrote down as being like, who would be enticed by cold lamb? But I don't know if it's like you're going to heat it up or anyway. Well, so he was this, this predates the microwave. I have to assume. Yeah, but they got ovens. True. But I mean, that's a lot of work. You, you, yeah. You, you turn it on and you wait 10, 15 minutes. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm getting into Don Draper's mind here. That seems like a lot of work for a man who just came home from. Here's work. the problem. You can't get into Don Draper's mind, Relash, and that's True. the whole point of the episode. I guess but so. no, Don gives Betty a, a watch. And I'm she, sorry. You were to the say? microwave was invented in 1946. Moving on. Thank you, Michael. I I appreciate your fact-checking. It's just Well, yeah, I didn't know that. Well, I guess you learn something every day. Um, I, mean, I, I didn't think that the microwaves were like common at this time period. Uh-huh. Introduced to home use in 1955. You think Manhattan... Money isn't buying a microwave, John. You think you're well, I was, special? I was thinking Aren't about like, like in, uh, don't they have like a whole thing in like American Hustle where it's just like the space oven and like they're like, what is what's up with these wacky microwaves? I think I think first of all, everyone should calm down. Sure. Stop yelling at each other. Sure. I think it's coming. You know, there are gadgets that come out and people are just like they're they're early adopters, you know, but these folks, they live in Austin. Right, they don't live in the Upper East Side, and that's all redundant. Um, so Don gives Betty this watch, and he's just like, "When I said that you have everything, I was wrong." And he's trying to be an ad man. And I remember I was watching this, and I was just like, "Don, you scoundrel! You can't, you can't buy Betty's happiness." And that's what he's trying to do. And she literally just like, "Oh, that's so nice. That's so wonderful. That's so blah blah blah." Clearly, she doesn't care. Later in the episode, she literally takes the watch off when she starts to talk, like, honestly with her psychiatrist. That's how much she cares. But she starts to unravel in front of Don, and I think she sort of hints at, like, what's bothering her, which she she mentions through Sally, and she means herself. She's like, what if Sally had had a scar? You know, then she'd be useless. She'd be, you know, she'd go through life, and life would be too hard. My read of this is that Betty is saying, if I was ugly, if I had been, if I had gotten scarred in that accident, 
Don would just ditch me because what do I bring to this relationship? I don't know who he is. He hides everything from me. I'm only here because I am attractive to him. That's it. And she generates that through her daughter because she can't bring herself to say it about herself. And I think that that it's so keen to like where her depression is coming from. What do you guys think? Yeah. Well, it's echoed twice in the, in the, in the episode itself, right? First with, uh, um, I can't think of her name, uh, Sterling's wife. Um, when she says, look at at you, right. You don't have a hard time keeping a man like that. Exactly. Exactly. But then also Don in bed when he's trying to show her everything she has, what did he say? Mm -hmm. He says, when I look at you, when I look at what we like, yeah. have, we, the kids, the house, it was nothing the about last her, thing, the last thing he says is that I look at that. And it's like her face. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You disagree with Ashen? I do not disagree. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to bring you in, uh, but not in a graceful way. But then it's so funny because when Betty breaks down and she's just like, what's happening to me. You know, she starts to have like a minor panic attack. I shouldn't say minor. It's, it's a panic attack, but it's one that's sort of like, you know, she's trying to keep at bay, right? It cuts right to Mitch. It cuts right to Dawn in her hallway, desperate, you know, clearly not the right time. They're not even in the apartment like they were before when it just cuts like them in the middle of having their, you know, their coitus. No, it cut right. It cuts right to like Dawn, like a drunkard at her door waiting for her, desperate. What do you guys think he's desperate for? Strength, maybe, is how I read that. Mike says strength. I mean, his his wife, how I read that that scene is that Betty was at the doctor's while Mm -hmm. he was there. He he dropped his wife off, who can't handle her shit, according to him, and goes to Mitch. Um, I mean, I see it more, I guess, as escape, like, like a, Betty's failures personally. So the idea of Midge is like this sort of idea where he can like kind of live out a fantasy of not being himself in a weird, and being himself, but not being himself at the same time. I think it's the opposite. You think so? I think it's the opposite. I think that Midge is when he's himself. I think the fantasy is Betty. I think the fantasy is what he's trying to sell to Betty. He's trying to sell to Betty happiness. Sure. When he's I think Midge, he's always trying to sell happiness. Isn't it? Well, with Midge, I think it's it's a little bit more free. It's a little bit more of like that is his real self. And what he gets with her fuels his creative spirit. And he's a taker. He's a user. He's just taking from this human, this Midge person, who is just sort of, you know, she's having some fun in the midst of it, I guess. But... Don's even trying to like bring some of his home life problems to her. And she's just like, can you not like, I feel cruel. Like if you're going to like break the, you know, bring your sort of fantasy into this like real thing that you and I have. And it's not even a real thing that they have. I don't think it's a real connection. I think it's Don just trying to, again, I think this encapsulates Don's entire, like the answer to like who Don is and like what he gets from romantic relationships he wants like a sort of creative muse. That's like his search. And he doesn't think that he can get it from one person. He has to get 
Betty, who is like a certain type of person that he gets something from. He gets the stability and he gets the traditional life that gives him an understanding of like American attitudes that help him understand, you know, how do I create, you know, advertisements. But then he gets from Midge the bohemian innovation that he brings to that makes him feel value as a creative director at Sterling Cooper. It's 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 fascinating. It's so well done. It's such good writing. Matthew Weiner is good at writing stuff. He's looking for his Julia Fox, man. There you go. For his uncut ads. <laughs> we we love Julia Fox over here. Even Will likes Julia Fox. And, you know, Will's not easy to please. I'm just waiting for you Fair to enough. respond to that. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to get this episode going. I apologize if I seem short. I just feel like we're almost, yeah, yeah. what, like, Two hours ten minutes just... left. Okay. Ten minutes enough. left in the episode. We're at the part where Paul is trying to he's making a move on Peggy. And it's my least favorite part of the episode because at this point I feel like Paul and Peggy could be friends. Maybe they will be later. And I think that like Peggy at this point has found in Paul some a friend, you know, somebody who's showing her the robes. And like it doesn't have to be romantic. It's just, you know, they have like a fun back and forth. Like it's it's not romantic at all. It's just sort of like a platonic, like, hey, my buddy. And he betrays that because he's horny and because he thinks that he sees an opportunity to, you know, try to like make a move on her and have it reciprocated. Obviously she rejects him. And we already talked about this earlier. And I think that that is what makes Peggy the same kind of, uh, the mere reflection of Don, which nobody seems to understand her. And she is confiding and keeping secrets from everybody of like what she really thinks. And like, there is one point where she does sort of like break down a little bit to Joan and just like, this is how I'm feeling. And Joan scorns her for it. She is punished for being forthcoming with Joan about her anxieties with this office workplace environment. And I think that that is great because we don't need a flashback of what life was like for Dawn in 1957. We don't need it. Because we have this scene with Peggy. And I think this scene with Peggy tells you exactly what it was like for Don. Don was probably in the same boat as Peggy where he showed up and he was like being used and he was sort of just like the new guy and he was trying to like make a name for himself and people were just taking advantage of him. Not in the same way as like, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't assume people were trying to sleep with him like in the same way, but you know, like general human nature. It's like when we see people, we try to like get something out of them. And I think that his first like his early years at sterling cooper are mirrored through peggy and i love that because it's such a nice way to get around the flashback story you know mechanism but do it in such a productive and i don't know productive is not even the right word efficient i don't know there's a good there's a better word for it it's just like really Uh, well written i mean at least from the pilot it got the implication that Don's upbringing was kind of not solely based on Peggy's character, but Peggy and Pete. Like it's a mix of the mm-hmm. two. Like it's kind of like, like what do you mean like, by that? Well, just that I feel like uh, Don didn't really have the availability to be maybe as vulnerable as Peggy can often be. But I do agree that like Peggy's sense of like she's trying to find her place in this workplace where she kind of feels like she has to kind of assume different identities at different times does seem pretty true to what I imagine it was like for Don before he kind of got a sure footing and like he kind of figured out where he's supposed to be and like the fact that he had to like kind of 
pull back his emotions to excel in the workplace. Like he had to learn the opposite lesson of what I imagine Peggy has to learn later down the line where it's that like he has to kind of like reserve his like sense of like being understanding of being forthcoming. Something that comes very naturally to Peggy in this episode, especially like in the bathroom scene where she's like the only one that really feels the desire to, um, you know, conceal the woman. I don't know if they, I don't recognize that character. Is that supposed to be an extra? Is that a character that the woman that keeps crying in the bathroom? Bridget. Um, oh, is that Bridget? Okay. She's um, the main character. She's going to be like, yeah, she, she's basically oh, she, Don Draper in the next episode. You didn't know that. Okay. I didn't. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's been a while since I've seen these episodes. Yeah. But, she's going to like sell the, yeah. She's going to like be in the next pitch meeting with Lucky Strike. Okay. I don't know if you're joking. He's fucking, or you're being he, he is. He, he's fucking with you. Okay. But I also do. I mean, <laughs> sorry. Does that make sense or is that, might be yeah. no, I, I I think I'm more in line with that, Will. John, I I think the hard thing I have with that comparison is that I'm, there's just no way that Dawn, a man in the 50s, had a similar experience to a woman in the workplace, right? Yeah, I, I see. Oh, yeah, it's definitely not yeah. the same. Definitely not the same. I think that they're mirrors, though. They have similarities, but they're fundamentally different. But yeah. I do think that they like they do have some similarities. Like I, I and I think that's sure. what the show is getting at. And you can obviously yeah. make an argument that like it's written in a way that's not authentic to the the real life historical implications. Yeah. But no, sure. and, and to Will's point too, like look at Pete Campbell, mm-hmm. twenty six years old, sucks at his job. People don't even like him. But look how much success he has already. You yeah. could call him a Roger Sterling, you know, in the making, couldn't you? No, I won't. <laughs> but like, hey, we'll have to build up to that, won't we? I mean, but like, even in the pilot, like looking at like Pete is pathetic in the pilot, but at the same time, like Peggy, even like even though she doesn't really like Pete, like she kind of idolizes or like looks up to him in some certain way. Like she literally sleeps with him because there is a sense of like she kind of wants to, you know, like be respected or be like, you know, kind of fill this like uh, sort of role in the workplace, and it's just like you know, it's it's kind of what's tragic about her character in this first season from what I can recall. But I mean, it's just, you know, like what, uh, what Mike is saying though, I feel like from what I gather, uh, Dawn had to kind of learn the opposite lessons of Pete or, uh, from Peggy. I mean, in that, like, you know, like he probably had to like kind of hold back everything that like he wanted to do. And like, he's like a product of like the, the fifties like, in that, like, you know, he had to kind of like suck it up and be like a man's man. And like Peggy, it's like coming, into her own you know adulthood in the 60s where things were starting to get a little bit more liberated things were kind of becoming more you know it's still like obviously the 60s so there's it's regressive in a lot of ways but you know it's also becoming socially progressive in a lot of ways as well and i'm I'm assuming you know based on what i assume the series is going to do that you know peggy becomes a little bit you know emboldened for that reason but you know that's me speculating sure the the episode ends with uh a series of scenes that are very interesting we you know after we have the whole peggy telling joan she's like i hate misogyny it's so annoying and the audience is like yeah you're right peggy and then we cut to it's interesting we cut to betty in the psychiatrist chair which we've talked about in this episode already and she's just unloading on this guy but he's not giving her anything back and but we, we get clearly from this entire interaction that she just needs somebody to talk to. She needs to have a dialogue. She needs, you know, any sort of interaction that makes her feel seen. And she's not getting that. She's not getting that from this guy. He's just sort of like sitting there, not responding to her. 
we cut then to you know don in a sort of like situation with midge where he's like overslapped or whatever and he gets his pitch you know he or not his pitch but he gets his like ad creative where the solution to the deodorant ad conundrum is you know what do women want any excuse to get closer you know that's the ad and it's such a juvenile sort of interpretation of that question right or the answer to that question but i love it because it's like that works as an ad so you can't deny that like an advertisement getting to that point would would sell deodorant sure you know like it yeah it would but what would it do like nothing like it wouldn't actually mean anything and i love it because it's like it's taking the creativity of don draper and setting it up as like it's genius but also hollow and empty at the same time and that's what i mean when i say this episode is such a great encapsulation of the entire series uh even though it's it's an episode that in some ways is kind of lesser than in terms of like some of the scenes are kind of so heavy-handed particularly when we get to the next scene uh we're, we're coming up to the end here where i think we have so we have don and betty they're in a dinner out in the city and it's perfect because what does she order for to drink a vodka gimlet what does he order an old-fashioned and it's set up earlier in the episode where like i mean the name old-fashioned of the drink it's so on the nose but what are you gonna do betty clearly is trying to break away from don's sort of like cowboy old-fashioned aesthetic into the future but he will not let her he is refusing to and the episode ends you know and he's even being sort of like juvenile with her he like makes a joke about like pat mcgroin and the phone book and he's just he thinks that he could fix everything with just being the same kind of person he was when they were in their 20s when he was sort of wooing her and courting her and she's going along with it because what is what else is she going to do right and the episode ends with betty going through this entire experience where at the very end she's like i still don't i don't know this man that i'm with i don't know my husband but then all of these deep intimate things that she has just told the psychiatrist don gets to call that guy up and get all those details for himself well betty knows nothing about him mm -hmm. and to me that is such a better comprehensive essay on misogyny in general no matter what the era it, it's in whether it's the 60s or right now when we're talking about this then that moment of like what he's doing to her it's it's so much better than just sort of like a basic like workplace sexual harassment like okay yeah look at that it's the 60s that to me like this is where the show is like this is where we're going like get ready and then it was it was so highlighted and hit on. I loved the song as your closing out of that. And you go into the closing credits. Like the first mm -hmm. few lines of it, there's a monster growing in our heads, yeah. raised up on the wicked things we've said. And it's just like, that scene was perfect. And then that song was a cherry on top to talk about like the tone and where things are going. I couldn't agree more. No, I just want oh, to ask. Well, you're shaking your head. It looks like you disagree no. with what? both of us. Yeah, don't put words in my mouth, or in, or don't make listeners assume that I'm doing something I'm not doing. I guess we just want to know uh, why you don't like the show Mad Men. That's all. Well, now you're putting words in my mouth, but um, 
I was going to ask. So this is pre HIPAA, right? Or is this or is he HIPAA, just oh the Hippocratic Oath or or oh, what's you mean he like, like uh, disclosures? Well, yeah, I just mean that I just didn't know if he's like is this before um, psychiatrists were you know like like the um, uh, if they before like they were like legally not allowed to disclose stuff with was it enacted until 1996 yeah it was oh, really? later in the game okay i just didn't know like he was being an extra bad therapist or if this was just like way before i think know, this like, was like the common attitudes of the day okay and yeah, I think that's why i figured yeah i just want to make sure i even want i was wondering to myself i was like was this something that don thought to himself that he needed to and, and that's my read of it is that he probably his understanding was like i'm going to find out who the therapist was going on but you could even you could also read it as like Don just sort of like being told like oh by the way by the psychiatrist if you want to know what's going on give me a call. I mean literally happening behind yeah. closed doors you know like that exactly. Idea, yeah. mm, chef's kiss. And that's how the episode ends, and that's how we we dive into what I think is going to be the real thrust, the the storytelling engine of season one of Mad Men. Are you guys ready? We're going in. We're getting into it. I know we went super long on this. I do apologize. <laughs> this is a bit of an uh, an aberration. It should not be this uh, weighted, but I think this we, was necessary. I think we literally went an hour over the episode length, but that's fine. We did. We yeah. did, but we got it out of our systems. I sure. Think. I guess. Hey, man, you can't uh, you can't mess with perfection. That's what I gotta say. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna bow out for now. Uh, thank you for listening to our our little bit of a Mad Men diatribe. Mostly, it was me ranting about men, uh, which I I am want to do. I do that a lot. But, you um, are a bit mad, I guess. That's true. Uh, we'll be back soon with episode three, which is called "Marriage of Figaro," which I already mentioned earlier in the show. It's my favorite episode of season one. It's a lot more good stuff to come. But until then, uh, you can. Of course, subscribe to us on the usual channels. And I have nothing to plug. I think we should just like say goodbye for now. But uh, thank you for listening. This is really fun, guys. Thanks. Bye. Follow me at Nonjagroni. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>